A young teenager named Erica Parsons has just been reported missing, but no one has actually seen her for two whole years. Police consider her adoptive parents, Casey and Sandy, to be the prime suspects, and now the couple is in the hot seat. Sitting directly across from me as I question them and try to get down to the truth. You see, this missing girl is at the center of a web of alleged lies these two have gotten away with up until a few weeks prior. When their son finally went to police and said that Erica had been missing, not for a few days, but for years. And that his parents were the ones who had, in fact, killed her. But their son soon recanted his statement that she was dead, and they claimed they were totally innocent. They told me they wanted me to interview them on national television and that they would do anything to clear their name, even if it meant having police tear up their entire backyard. If Casey thought she was going to come in and evade my questions, well, she had another thing coming. I was prepared to give these two a fair shot and hear what they had to say, but I also planned to hold their feet to the fire. On this episode, a shocking allegation from Casey's past comes to light and makes her alleged involvement in Erica's disappearance seem even more plausible. Messages supposedly sent from Erica to her birth mother just don't add up. And as police dig deeper for clues at the Parsons' home, they come up with some alarming discoveries. That's all coming up on this episode of Little Girl Lost, the case of Erica Parsons. Mystery and murder, analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil. My Bessie Stormburst low top and weekend sneakers empower my summer adventures. Now, I went to New York last week because I had to do a press tour, and I was prepared to embrace the summer season to its fullest, no matter what it threw my way weather-wise. And I'd been going from interview to interview, like seriously, 15, 20 during the day, and then I went to a dinner with clients. I knew that in the middle of that dinner— I had to do one more really key interview. And in order to do it, I had to leave the middle of that dinner and that noisy restaurant for about 10 or 15 minutes. And sure enough, I got to the door to step outside where it was quiet, and it was raining cats and dogs. But I had on my Vessie Stormburst, so I was able to go through all of that water on the sidewalk, across the street, to get into my car so I could do the interview in the quiet. You want to stay prepared. Join us now and let us make this summer one for the books. Seize the sun-kissed days and thrilling escapades at Vessie.com mystery for shoes that masterfully combine waterproof protection with urban elegance. Start your journey with Vessie and get an automatic 15% off your first order at checkout. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television.
When the parson sat down to interview with me, keep in mind that this story was hot off the press. It had just become a nationwide case. So I was the first person after police that was speaking to this couple and uncovering details in real time. The skeletons were already tumbling out of Casey's closet. She told me she had never been in any legal trouble except for a speeding ticket. However, her claim of being as pure as the driven snow turned out to be a far cry from the truth. Family members were already contradicting her claims that Erica was safe and sound with her grandmother and calling her a liar. Erica's birth mother, Carolyn, had refuted the very existence of this woman, and certainly Erica's own mother would know if this Irene, a.k.a. Nan Goodman, was real. My goal was to get to the bottom of all this. I showed the Parsons the statement Carolyn had posted on her Facebook page. She said, I am the birth mother, and she has no family in Asheville, and I nor her dad have no clue where she is, and we love her and want to find her and know she is safe. This poor woman has got to be feeling just a tidal wave of betrayal and confusion. Here she thought she had done a good deed. Keep in mind, she didn't just drop her daughter off with strangers or on a stoop somewhere. These were relatives she thought she could trust. And now she's hearing that her daughter was last seen with a woman she knows nothing about. As it turns out, Casey might have been tricking Carolyn for years into thinking that Erica was safe and doing just fine. These two had exchanged Facebook messages for years about their daughter and they contradicted the timeline and other information Casey had stated to police. Remember, according to Casey, she had turned Erica over to her grandmother and hadn't seen her in years, yet wasn't the least bit concerned because she thought she was in good hands. As Casey was Erica's legal guardian, Carolyn went through her to get updates. And it seems like Casey used this control to her advantage. In January of 2011, Casey wrote a message to Carolyn saying, I have always told you I would never put you down to Erica. You gave me the most wonderful gift someone could ever give someone. I thank you so much for her. I also told you when Erica wanted to meet you, I would let you know. And she is wanting to now. This sounds like for years that birth mother and daughter were deliberately kept apart under the pretense that Erica didn't want to get to know her. It seems suspicious. If Casey was behind this, she had a reason for not wanting them to see each other. Finally, Carolyn says she did meet Erica that January for a brief time at a local fast food restaurant. That was the last time they saw each other in person. Curiously, Two weeks later, Carolyn received another Facebook message, this one allegedly sent by Erica. The message said that she wasn't ready to start a relationship with her after all. If the Parsons had been cold-blooded enough to cause Erica to vanish, it's not far-fetched to think that Casey would pose as Erica and make her mother think she didn't want anything to do with her. That way, there wouldn't be any more pesky questions for them to deal with like, where this child was. 
Here's where the communication between these two mothers starts getting suspicious. In a Facebook message to Carolyn in March of 2013, Casey shared that Erica was taking driver's ed and that she was away for the weekend but would soon return. In another message, she said that they had all recently taken a family picture that she had soon send along. And that's not all. Other messages came to light, some of which were supposedly sent by Erica herself under Casey's Facebook account. In these messages sent to her biological mother, Erica seems like a happy, well-adjusted young teen that is very happy living with the Parsons and loves them. This trail of correspondence sets off alarm bells. Notice that there's no mention of this Nan character and Erica's stay with her, yet Casey's giving other supposed updates of Erica's current life. Perhaps Casey didn't mention Nan because she knew she couldn't lie to someone about a relative they knew didn't exist. Police also found it curious that Casey, who seemed to conduct a lot of communication on Facebook, was never friends with Nan on the social media site. It was even more perplexing that Nan didn't seem to have her own page. So again, this child was left in this woman's care, and the only thing Casey claimed to ever have had was a phone number. I had to press her on this. You met her at a McDonald's, Mm -hmm. okay? Now, do you know where she took her? Do you know the address? No, I don't. Did you ever look at the house to see? No, she would send pictures of her house to us, um, showing Erica the horses, because it was a little farm close to the Biltmore house. Uh And do you have those pictures? No. It's a tad convenient to say you have no address and no pictures. And who wouldn't have those pictures on their cell phone or email? Everything is digital nowadays. She should have been able to pull it up right then and there and show me. And Casey and Sandy are making Nan out to be this magical Mary Poppins-like figure. There's this bucolic house, horses, and of course, she's showering Erica with gifts. Sandy referred to her as a Walt Disney grandparent. To complete this fantasy, Casey even said that Nan's farm was near the Biltmore House, a beautiful historic landmark in Asheville. Well, if that's the case, why didn't she suggest police start a search in that area? If that's your child and you know the area she's in and you're concerned, you would want police to go knock on every door. What happened to those pictures? I do not know. They was, so it would help if we had yes, those pictures. You get on Google Map, match it up, try to find it. But yes. you, you didn't save the pictures? No, I never dreamed anything like this would ever come. Okay, and, and you talked on the phone, so you have her phone number. We have a cell phone number that got disconnected. About, it was two months after Erica went for the final time with her. Okay, but you have that number, right? No, I don't have that number. Understand, this woman has a very selective memory. She has no problem giving me copious details when it serves her own story. She described to me the boots she gave Erica right before last Christmas, the house where Nan lives, that Nan has a friend nicknamed Strawberry who has a baby. She said on camera to us that Nan knew where she lived, 
So Nan knows about Casey's children and Casey's house and was, in her words, like a grandmother to her. And yet, there's not one existing photo of them together, and she's never physically been to Nan's house. Yet she allowed her child to just go live there. She's never even seen this house, but she dispatches her daughter there. There are similarities to another Casey. In my mind, I keep thinking Casey Anthony, in that these two women seem to structure their lives in a similar way. Oftentimes, liars like to pile on the details. When Casey Anthony talked about Zanny the nanny, she created this fully realized person when she talked about her two police. And Casey Parsons does the same thing with Nan. And remember, they feel when they're talking about irrelevant details, they're not having to answer questions about relevant facts. The thing is, the basic details you would want, she just can't seem to provide. But she can deflect and talk about irrelevant details till the ends of the earth. She doesn't have a photo to show you. She doesn't have an address. She doesn't have a phone number. But she can talk about all these little nuances. Nuances that can't be confirmed. You see, pathological liars often try to use this tactic of pumping up a story or a description because they think it legitimizes what they're saying. They answer questions that aren't asked. They go into real detail about things that are off point, because as I said, the longer they're talking about things that don't matter, they don't have to talk about things that do matter. But then if you say, okay, introduce me to this person, give me a concrete piece of evidence that I can verify, then all of a sudden they try to pivot and go back to talking about things that are ambiguous, vague. They obfuscate so you can't pin them down. It's like trying to sack fog or nail jello to the wall. The closer you get, they just evaporate. When I ask people questions, I'm not looking for fluffed up answers. I don't need to know that this grandma was a gift giver or seemed like a wonderful lady that loved the whole family. I want to know the woman's address. I want to see a picture of her. Give me her social security number. Give me something I can use to track her down and see her in the presence of this missing child. I have questions I want to ask the woman that supposedly has control of this child. Don't tell me how nice she is. Tell me where she is. Still, I'll give Casey this much credit. Even when it was abundantly clear that things didn't add up, even when nothing she said made a lick of sense, as many a narcissist does, she stuck to her story. And that makes me wonder about Nan. Why, why would she let us go through all this stuff when we... Well, do you believe that she's the biological grandmother? Yes, I do. Because there she, are family members that say biological grandmother is dead. They do not know her. That's the detectives that have said that. Well, know, but they're saying that this woman is dead. No, they also told me that her half-sister was dead and it was proven that she wasn't. 
So now her defense morphed into that the family goes around saying people are dead, and then they mysteriously pop up alive. The bottom line was she had gotten away with these tall tales for years, and now she had to answer for them. This girl's birth mother had found her out. And so Casey needed a new line of defense. Her newest tactic? Disparage Carolyn and smear her. The Parsons were now indicating that Carolyn was the one who had introduced this Nan character into their lives and that she was the one who had wanted them to contact this so-called grandmother. Now talk about flipping the script, talk about redirecting blame. This was allegedly Casey's way of saying, don't look at me. I never would have met this woman if it weren't for Carolyn. But the past catches up to people, and this wasn't the first time Casey had been accused of a heinous crime. A woman was about to reveal to me a disturbing allegation against Casey. She claimed that back in 2002, she had hired Casey for $10,000 to act as a surrogate. And that in return, Casey had attempted to steal and sell her unborn child. Now, against this backdrop, you just cannot make this stuff up, even though it seems like something out of a soap opera. Obviously, this story painted a far different picture of the seemingly meek and vulnerable woman sitting before me. I gave Casey the chance to explain herself. There has been this question of surrogacy in 2002. Did you act as a surrogate for a couple in 2002? Yes, I did. And was it a good delivery and baby was fine? The delivery was good, yes. Okay, but there was controversy and drama surrounding that, correct? Uh, mainly with my sister again causing the most controversy. Same one? That, Same one. Okay, and what did she say? Um, she called the intended parent and told them that I was trying to sell their baby. Okay, so she calls and says, you're having the baby, but you're gonna to try to sell it. Yes. Did you tell them that you had a miscarriage? No, she wanted me to abort the baby because they had done sex selection. And I don't know, he dropped the sample on the floor and they was unable to complete that. And she thought it would be a girl. So they wanted me to abort when I came out with a pregnancy, a positive pregnancy test, because they wanted a boy. And Who I wanted wouldn't do you it. to abort? The attended mother. The intended mother wanted you to abort the baby? Yeah. Because the story that your sister told was that you told this couple you had miscarried because you intended to keep the baby and sell it. Yeah, that's what she had told. That's the, what I'm saying. Yeah, Robin said that, my sister. I did not say that. Uh -huh. Well, according to our local affiliate, WSOC in Charlotte, they have seen a letter from an attorney written to you, Casey. The letter allegedly states, Casey Parsons made an agreement to be a surrogate with a couple from another state. The couple's attorney said that they had learned that Parsons had told the couple that she had lost her baby to a miscarriage and that wasn't true. The attorney said that they had evidence that Parsons was shopping their unborn child, trying to find other prospective parents who would pay for the child. And the attorney told the Parsons that the FBI had been notified and that they could be prosecuted for kidnapping if they tried to keep the child. 
child was turned over to the couple and is now 11 years old. And in a letter back to the couple, Casey Parsons apologized and said she did not intend to hurt them. Now that's in the letter that the affiliate has now, shared with us. 32 weeks of pregnancy, I refused to give her the baby because I did not know. That's the only reason she agreed to take the baby at 32 weeks of pregnancy was because I had an ultrasound and found out it was a boy. Um, that was the only reason. If it had come out to be a girl, we would have had the baby. She would not have took it. Were you trying to sell this baby? No, we had trying a baby Trying to broker crib. this baby? Were we, you talking to other couples? No, we had a baby crib and a car seat and lots of clothes already prepared to bring this baby home. You understand from a, yeah. from a law enforcement standpoint, if they've never met y'all, don't know you, your, your own son calls and says, they've murdered my sister and buried in her backyard. Your sister says, well, she tried to sell one baby one time before. Now this one's missing to Nan, who nobody can find. And so they're going, man, this just has a, a, a stench to the whole thing, which is why I'm glad you're here to tell your side of this. Yeah. But you understand from their point of view, if you, watching, if you were watching, if you were watching this on television, yeah, oh, yes. you'd go, uh, exactly. it looks fishy to me. Oh yes, exactly. Yes. So, she concedes that this whole wild story doesn't pass muster, and yet she can't defend herself in any clear, linear way. You heard me try to connect the dots with her. It was as if I had to explain to her why she was under the microscope now and how this allegation of kidnapping from her past was only adding fuel to the fire. Casey's response to this woman's serious claims seemed like an attempt to vilify her in retaliation. Take a listen to what this anonymous woman has to say about Casey because she has, well, a quite different take on what transpired. The woman who hired Casey as a surrogate joins us now. Again, she did not want to reveal her identity. Now, here's the issue. Casey told me that you changed your mind and that you wanted her to abort the baby. What do you say to that? That is a complete lie. Okay, did you want this baby? Absolutely. You hired her as a surrogate, but at what point during that pregnancy did she tell you that there was a miscarriage? About six weeks along. How long before she ever confirmed to you that in fact there was not a miscarriage and this baby was still alive? About six weeks before our child was born. It was not until I was on this website. I um, went to the back of the boards and I just started scrolling through and that's where I found the message. Looking for the couple that worked with Casey. I have some very wonderful news for you. Okay, and now, this turned Martin. out to be who? This turned out to be a family member of hers. And she said, Casey has a crib set up in her bedroom and she's planning on keeping your baby. Right, why do you think she, she told you about the miscarriage? Because she wanted to make money. So you believe that she was going to broker that baby to another couple? There's not a doubt in my mind. I, I am afraid of what this woman is capable of. But you ultimately did at some point 
you physically got the child and the child is with you today, correct? Absolutely, from day one, yes. Right, from day one. This was a harrowing experience for this woman. She told me that Casey had sent her nasty emails and then cut off all contact. She caused her agonizing pain and worry. If this alleged kidnapping claim was true, it tells us that Casey isn't scared of telling horrific lies. She will do the unthinkable to get her way until she is backed into a corner by the law. She sees people as commodities. She's allegedly willing to scam a couple out of getting their child if it means she can make a profit. It doesn't matter if she's ruining lives. She's motivated only to help herself. And yet it was intriguing that while she was being interviewed by me, the only thing she admits she might have done wrong was to leave Erica in the care of Nan. The only thing I have done wrong is to let my daughter live with her biological grandmother, and I thought that was fine. I just want Dr. Field just to please help me get the word out to Erica that it'll be okay if she calls. It solves every problem. It proves that I didn't kill Erica. Let's analyze her behavior for a minute. Let's look at things in terms of how she responds when she feels cornered. The first move, she attempts to victimize herself and play the poor me card, when in fact, she's very calculating. We even have footage of her from when I interviewed her weeping over photos of Erica. Crocodile tears, in my opinion. A hallmark sign of narcissism is to act like you're above reproach and that everyone around you is to blame. While just speaking with me, she blamed an entire group of others, including the woman who had accused her of attempting a surrogacy kidnapping. Her relatives, her husband Sandy's relatives, Grandma Nan, who suffice it to say, in my opinion, is totally fictitious, She's even blaming the child, Erica, as she said she wanted her to know that it's okay to call. It would solve every problem. She's implying, you've done wrong, but I will forgive you. She's insinuating that Erica just doesn't want to speak to her, which she supported with her story of Erica blocking her phone number and saying that Erica had referred to her as a bitch. So we're supposed to believe this girl could have voluntarily gone radio silent for two years because she is just a conflict-ridden teenager. So when she's cornered, it's poor me. I'm the victim here, not others. Me. I'm the victim here. Why are you looking at me? You should be looking at all of these other people. Even though I'm the one that's responsible for this child, I'm the guardian. I'm the one that's charged with protecting and providing for this child that I just dropped off two years earlier. I'm the victim here. While we flash photos of this missing girl, I made a public plea to the millions of people watching that if anyone had any information as to her whereabouts, to please come forward. Meanwhile, it was becoming clearer by the minute 
that the people who had the most to reveal were sitting right next to me. Their lawyer was with them the day that I talked to them, which I appreciated. Here's what he had to say. Well, certainly to find the little girl is what we're all looking for. But at the same time, when they came to me, they were being interrogated, they were being accused of criminal offenses, and people have asked me, are they suspects? And my question is, suspects for what? We don't know what's happened. So from a criminal aspect, before I let them talk to anybody, I said, talking on a, on, to the public is typically not a good idea. But if you're honest with me and you have no criminal involvement at all, then, you know, if you want to do this, if you want to tell your side, then go ahead. And do you feel like they've told their side here today? They've told their side. I'm not saying that it's, there's certainly a hole in it. The person they think is Nan evidently does not exist according to law enforcement. So you look at the, the way things progressed that this Nan came in and knew all about their lives, all about their children before they'd ever met them. Uh, it makes it look very suspicious. And then after, the, after Erica goes and stays with them, suddenly we can't get in touch with her anymore. That again is very suspicious, but that certainly would not lead to criminal involvement on their part. In the days to come after I interviewed the Parsons, police, SBI, and the FBI conducted a more extensive search of their home. And the search revealed a lengthy list of questionable items found. Investigators spent a long day searching the home, collecting possible evidence inside the home as well as surveying the backyard for clues. Because you have to remember their son originally said that they had killed her and buried her in the backyard two years earlier. Now, he recanted that, but that was his initial allegation. They seized pictures, computers, cell phones, and letters between family members. There were fragments of drywall that appeared to be cut and removed from a closet with red stains. Investigators sent samples of these floorboards to a lab to be tested for blood. They also seized two large knives wrapped in shrink wrap. Bizarrely, there was also a bag of John Benet Ramsey magazines found. Now, police emphasized that this was still early on in the investigation and that they were still considering all possibilities and leads. But this just did not look good. And what would happen next would leave everyone perplexed. When they agreed to sit down with me, both Casey and Sandy also agreed to take polygraph tests. There was no hesitation on their parts. While their story thus far had raised numerous doubts in my mind, I wanted to offer them this opportunity in the interest of fairness. The test would not be admissible in any court of law. However, if they did 
pass, it would certainly give them some much-needed credibility. Now, I enlisted leading expert Jack Tremarco to provide the polygraph test. Jack sadly passed away in 2018, and I considered him to be a wonderful regular contributor to the Dr. Phil Show with a wealth of knowledge. He was also a good personal friend who I respected greatly, a man of extreme integrity. I knew if anyone could help me get the real story out of these two, it would be him. He was a former FBI special agent and then went on to become the program manager for the FBI polygraph unit in Los Angeles. During his esteemed career, he conducted more than 3,500 polygraph tests. If you're gonna lie to somebody, Jack Tremarco was not the guy you wanted to start with. Sandy Parsons was the first to be hooked up. But Casey, would be another story. Coming up on our next episode, I'll reveal the shocking backstage antics that occurred on the day Casey was supposed to take the polygraph test, as well as Sandy's results. And there's more to come in the saga of missing Erica Parsons. As the case presses on, more horrible accusations about the Parsons will come out and they start to give police a clearer picture of what happened to Erica and where she might be. That's all coming up next. You've been listening to Little Girl Lost, the case of Erica Parsons. This is Mystery and Murder, analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil.